Welcome to Cinemascope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to Cinemascope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to Cinemascope today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Chewy, we're home. I am tempted to squeeze. Joy after today. <laughs> today has been such a good day in the land I, of media and entertainment. I know the new uh, Hateful Eight teaser came out today. Squeak! What? <laughs> <laughs> what? <Huh? laughs> well, clearly you and I have a different interpretation of squeak with joy. <laughs> no, no, I, I'm just teasing. Pete. I don't want to talk about it because it's my trailer, so I don't want to talk about it yet. Oh, okay. All right. All right. Yeah. Uh, but I do want to talk about this. Oh. And while I'm at it, let me tell you about that. 
<laughs> this and that. Uh, Daredevil. Can we talk about Daredevil? I've yeah, I've seen the first two episodes. Okay, what'd you think? I'm enjoying it so far. I did read uh, a comment by somebody who's who made a I think a fairly valid point that they don't do enough emphasis of him using his other senses to counteract his blindness. And I mean, there's little bits here and there, but uh, right now it just seems like he's just a pretty kick-ass guy who just fights really well. Yeah, you got to be patient with that one because that's one thing that they, I, in my opinion, I, I had that same opinion the first couple of, I, I actually had problems with the first like three or four episodes. I, I thought it was just didn't quite find the rails, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and there is, uh, you know, when they finally introduce who the the character who becomes Kingpin, um, I, I think it finds its own. And, um, I, you know, I, I think that they dribble out backstory over the course of the 13 episodes. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm saying I think, I know, I finished the series this week. So um, they dribble it out all the way to the very final episode of this thing. You're looking at flashback material about kind of how he was trained and how he did his thing. So it, it really, it pays off, but it pays off in little bites. Little gotcha. tiny nuggets. Okay. Um, the the series gets or the show gets much much better, and I I found myself really, like, really binging toward the end, like <laughs> like the the staying up way too late kind of thing. Just got well, it's just auto plays on Netflix. I'll just it's not my fault. It just keeps playing, uh, and so. Uh, but I I quite enjoyed it, and I'm I'm anxious to hear what you think once you get past the hump, the kind of new series hump. Well, I mean, I've enjoyed the first two episodes so far. So, I mean, I... uh, And yet there's still a hump, Andy. Just get ready. That's good to know. That's good to know. (laughs) (laughs) That was... uh, That's my thing. I I have... uh, What did we do? I introduced my children to uh, Back to the Future, the trilogy. We did the whole trilogy this week. Wow. Yeah, I know. Uh, It was a busy week. Well, you know, (laughs) we, we bought ourselves some time. Let's just say that. Uh-huh. And uh, and so that was really really fun. I had forgotten just how much fun it is to watch it with people who haven't seen it, right. and how it, even a film that even a series of films that's you know twenty years old, um, there's still a lot of joy when you know they do these things. It was such a such an incredible formula that works so well in all three movies. Same script, different set. Perfect. Right, right. <laughs> it's perfect. And, it's, and it's not to make you feel older, but it's thirty Thir- years. Thirty years old. Yeah. <laughs> Stay off my side. Um, you know, so, you know what we've been doing over here. Tell me, we've been fast and furiousing. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's yes, so good. Catching up now because uh, yeah, we decided we're going to go see uh, seven in the theaters, and so we've plowed through the first five. Uh, I'd say we were moving pretty fast and furious, and so we, we six <laughs> six just arrived. We're going to watch that one this weekend, and then. Hopefully sneak off to seven if we get a chance. That's awesome. Now, do you remember when I... Because I, I think I reported oh, yeah. every week uh, my Fast and Furious update. I think it was a one-week update because I think you did it all in a week. <laughs> <laughs> I think you may be right. Like I said, every week I diligently reported. Uh, and I can't... I, I'm trying to think now if you were giving me any guff for binging that series at the time. No, I, I enjoyed the first two. It's just I heard the third one was bad, and so I kind of stopped. Did, you, did that hold up? Do you, you think know, it was bad? I didn't think it was bad. I definitely felt it was weaker, and I think it's because they it, it was a different tone from the first two. It was all it was 
much more there was no crime i mean he was dealing with the yakuza but <laughs> there was like no crime that he was actively trying to stop right. or involved in he was just you know it was an honor thing so it was yeah. totally totally different but man watching those cars drift was pretty stunning it has been since then that i've seen those things since however many years it's been and i don't quite remember this but i just heard uh, uh chad stoops great friend of the show was telling me last week he said you actually have to watch number three after number five right because the guy um his friend in number three yeah um is is in four and five and I mean, yeah. So it, I can't remember. Does it make more sense if you think of it that way? Well, that's my wife and I kept saying was like, okay, so wait a minute. So this all happens because that even happens in number two where, I mean, in number four, some of it happened before number two. So it's like trying to piece together. Right. Okay, wait a minute. Where is, they jump around a little bit chronologically. And so, yeah, the rest of four and five all happens before three. And okay. I don't know what happens in six because I haven't seen that one yet. All right. Well. But can't, can't wait. The, the lead from number se- uh, number three is in number seven. Well, that's good to know. I need to sneak off and see that myself. Uh, but uh, not this weekend because we have a big show coming up this weekend, right? That's right. You excited for this? It's getting really great reviews probably <laughs> somewhere, maybe in Russia. Well, not some- here so far. Someone's uh, giving it some good reviews somewhere, right? Yes, Child Forty Four is. Uh, what did we last see? He's cranking a thirty-six percent on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> thirty now. Thirty, 30 and 30, falling. Yeah. Thirty. I'm trying to check and see if there's anybody on it who's given it a good review. Let's see. <laughs> Look at their, somebody out there. Some critic has to love it, right? Apparently not. Yeah. So we are uh, we're jumping in on a film board on uh, on Saturday night. So she'll be live later this weekend, and uh, so be on the lookout for that. Job forty four. Yeah. Uh, you know, as always, I'm excited uh, for what uh, what Tommy Handsome is going to bring to his flick chart song. It's always that to look forward to. I wonder if he'll do it in Russian. I was going to say Russian and in minor key. Very, <laughs> yes. yes. Kind of like the opening of uh, Hunt for Red October. It'll be <laughs> <laughs> totally. Uh, I so that's coming up. Uh, other than that, do we have any other news? I don't think so. Let's tell the people where we're from. Where are we from? Hey, everybody! It's the next reel. I'm Pete Wright. That there is Andy Nelson. How to do? <laughs> and we <laughs> s- spoil movies somewhat belatedly tonight yeah. on the show. Uh, the I think the fifth in our 2015 film noir series with Billy Wilder's Ace in the Hole from 1951. But before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at thenextreel. And if you're a cheat, if you know how to rig the system and you're not afraid to do it for your own personal gain, then you're just the kind of louse who might like to head over to Instagram.com slash the next reel and play the next reel's Instagram hashtag pony prize hashtag guess the movie challenge. Andy, how did we do against the members of the press this week? This was a fun week because the images were very tantalizing, but nobody could quite pin it. And so there were just guesses all over the map. And it's, a, it's, it's clearly a genre picture. I think that helped people start throwing a lot of fun guesses out. Uh, but it did take until the, uh, let's see, the 
fifth image, no, the fourth image, sorry, um, when G. Larset again came out and uh, was able to nail it, it is, in fact, Cliffhanger. Good old Rennie Harlan with a little dangling from the mountaintops action. Man, you remember when he lets her go? Oh, yeah. And do you, do, do you remember... The, do you remember the the, uh, the version of that in, I think it was Ace Ventura 2? <laughs> yes, wasn't it like a, <laughs> it's a little raccoon? It? It was a raccoon. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> when nature calls. Oh, yes. Um, that is... Uh, that's awesome. <laughs> Well played. Well played. Uh, that's fantastic. Uh, G. Larsed. Are we sure it's G. Larsed? Because I sure call him Glarsed a lot. I, I, it looks like Glarsed, but it actually is Gustav Larsed. But I mean, when you click, really, when you click on his name. But I could just, we could just go with Glarsed. I mean, really, he's <laughs> he's a nice guy. He's active with us on Twitter. I, he's great recommendations, and yet I really want to call him Glarsed because it feels like he's my friend from another planet. <laughs> well, there you go. All right. Well, it's a title of honor. Let's just say that. It is. Right. It is the title of honor. Andy, I think it's time. Let's do boop beep, boop. Woo. I want to go first. 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 You in the back. <laughs> <laughs> Star Wars Force Awakens teaser trailer 2. Is it really a tease anymore? Yes, it is. The answer is yes. It is a, it's a very good tease. Oh my goodness, this makes me so excited. And let me tell you, uh, let me tell you why in moderately more detail. Because I got an email today from someone who uh, has admitted a change of heart. Would you like to hear this email? I'd love to hear that email. It says, seeing Han and Chewie actually made me almost start crying. I'm pretty much wholly invested in this now. My box that my inner child was locked in has been shattered. Andy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What could I say? (laughs) And you know what? That is so funny because I was just like that too. Man, when he said, when he goes, Chewie, we're home. Oh, crushing. And you know what? It's not even uh, middle-aged men who react that way. My kids, I sh- just showed them the trailer, and the same thing. They were over the moon when oh, Chewie yeah. and Han showed up. Over the moon. My my daughter. <laughs> oh, uh, bless her. She she watched it with me, and then she's like, "Who is that man at the end of the Chewbacca?" <laughs> oh my gosh! It's like, honey, that was Han oh. Solo. She's like, "What?" <laughs> but he's so old. <laughs> You shut your mouth, girl. You shouldn't. <laughs> well, I had, but then I was like, okay, I never actually explained to her that these movies were actually made a long time ago. <laughs> right. And so, so it kind of threw her a little bit. Well, remember I was complaining about the digitals uh, last week? Do you remember that? Oh, yes. Yeah. So I went ahead and bought them. Okay. And uh, I, I watched just, we're, we're doing, we're starting our series this week and we're doing the, um, I don't think it's. I can officially call it the Machete Order, right? Uh, because we're including Episode One, but we're yeah. Doing... It's like it's like the pre Machete Order, whatever that. Yeah, other whatever that yeah. that Nerd Two O version of it. Anyway, so I think it's, we should call it the Glarsed version. Or it's the Glarsed version. That's right. It's the four five one two three six, and so we're starting that on Friday night. Very excited about that. Excellent. And uh, we watched. We just opened it up and watched the first, you know, two minutes. The the opening crawl and the, um, uh, you know, and the 
the attack the, on the, the attack on the imperial cruiser right and so it looks it really i mean it looks it looks great it looks really 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 great it is so clean and it made me question when it was made like there's there is very little in there in terms of the design that looks dated it's sort of amazing mm-hmm. uh, it's been cleaned up so well so i'm just not accustomed to seeing it that clean because i've i've never watched it you know bigified on my tv yeah the blu-ray yeah is, i don't have the blu-ray i will say the one thing that i do have that you don't have on my pretty version mm-hmm. is the 20th century fox uh music and the opening well i i, I saw the disney it's the new disney terrible version and i yeah it's, it's really bad what's what is good is that star Wars 20th century fox still m- retains the rights for episode four and so the opening i still get the fanfare for that one Oh, that's good. But the other five uh, are Disney. It's t- it's really bad. Yeah, I don't. It's it's like let's pull a few pieces from uh, yeah. the score from a few different places in the films and yeah. mush Just it all together. Really ugly, ugly, ugly. So anyway, that's that's my update. But the the secondary update. And I'm going on way too long about Star Wars. But here's the thing. Uh, the other thing that came out is uh, our friend of the show, DC Barnes. Um, his he won the Force for Change. Uh, contest and was sent with a friend, J. Trent Adams, to London, to Pinewood Studios, to be on set. And he hasn't been able to talk about his experience at all. Well, they released today the teaser trailer as part of the Star Trek experience, or Star Trek celebration, uh, the teaser trailer of his experience, he and Trent, uh, there. And so uh, the stories are starting to leak out about how they treated him, and they show him shaking hands with all the important people, J.J. Abrams. It's really, really great. So you can find that on our Facebook page. And and uh, link to it there and congratulate uh, uh, DC and Trent because what a great opportunity. They were good fans. Watching them was almost as good as watching the trailer, like their reactions to everything. It was like living all of my uh, childhood <laughs> fantasies through them as they were like boarding the Millennium Falcon and putting on the Stormtrooper helmet and everything. I know. And when, when it turns over and Trent looks at the camera and he says, there are no that's exactly what i was thinking in my head there are no words and i'm here i'm watching a two-minute teaser of this experience and it was that great so anyway it was really fun absolutely all right what's yours i've used up most of your time so you have 30 seconds (laughs) can i have 33 yes that's all you get (laughs) oh my trailer is for a uh a completely completely different type of movie it's It's actually ace in the hole too Right, it's the 33, uh, tying in nicely with Ace in the Hole. Uh, this is the story uh, that we all are familiar with of the uh, Chilean miners, the the big mining accident that happened back in 2010, the uh, Copiapó mining accident where the mine collapsed and 33 uh, miners were trapped underground. And uh, this is a film of their harrowing story of surviving underground for 69 days, uh, battling with lack of food, lack of uh, oxygen, just everything, their families struggling outside trying to deal with it. And, you know, it looks like a really powerful story. I mean, I knew it was a powerful story just from watching all of the news uh, as it continued over the course of those uh, two-plus months when it happened. But um, And then, of course, when they all came out, it was just really kind of just an amazing story that they all survived. Um, so I'm thrilled that we're going to get to see this experience theatrically and really get a sense of their their journey. 
Um, but what really excited me about the trailer is just looking at the cast. I was like, man, Lou Diamond Phillips is back. And it just got me (laughs) so excited because I'm like, I mean, he's kind of just fallen off the map in so many ways. And he kind of pops up in things now and then. And he's one of those guys that I always enjoyed when I was young. You know, I think, uh, um, La Bamba was on, on repeat, uh, for me when I was at, uh, at that age and Young Guns. I mean, Young you know, Guns those were was some, huge for me. Yeah, just fantastic things that I, I watched all the time when I was young. And, um, you know, I just got very excited seeing him in this. And it's one of those things where it's, you know, it's kind of like watching Alive where all of these Americans, I mean, at least they're more Hispanic Americans this time, are all playing Chileans. But, you know, to sell to the movie going public, I'm like, okay, that that should be fine. Antonio Banderas is in there, Rodrigo Santoro as uh, one of the government officials working up on top. Juliette Binoche pops up. That's a, that was a surprise. Bob Gutton is in there as the uh, as the president. Um Gabriel Byrne is in there and uh, James Brolin. It's like it's this crazy cast. And I'm (laughs) just kind of I was kind of surprised by the the actual star power that they got for this. Uh, Patricia Riggin is directing it or it's probably Patricia. She's um, a Mexican director. And so uh, it's like, you know, I, I don't know. I feel like they're putting a lot of interesting pieces in place for this and it makes it something I want to see. It looks pretty good. I am very excited about it. I think the thing I'm most excited about is the the sort of hodgepodge of languages uh, mm. that show up in the trailer. Like it doesn't feel like a a forced sort of um, like it just is a very global sort of a multi language, multinational kind of experience. I really I really like that. Yeah, it definitely is. Yeah, it looks really exciting. It looks like uh, I, it, when it, the trailer first starts to roll, I, you start thinking, oh, this is going to be a great sort of low-budget interpretation of some experience. And then, man, the mind caves in, and you're like, whew, this is an effects film. This is That that was great. Yeah. there's yeah. some. It looks really, really good and terrifying. <laughs> terrifying is the word. Being in that situation is just not a situation I ever want to be in. Yeah, yeah <laughs> truly. So it it has no release date yet. Uh, it's set to release in Chile, August sixth. So I don't know if in the U.S. it's going to be kind of looking for an August release date as well, or if it'll be before or after that. But uh, you know, hopefully it'll be sometime uh, this summer, and we'll all get a chance to go check it out. Excellent, excellent. All right, Andy. Mm-hmm. How'd you like to make yourself a thousand dollars a day? I'm a thousand dollar a day newspaper man. You can have me for nothing. Everybody, listen to me. Listen. Beneath this sinister mountain, a man is buried alive, trapped by a cave-in. And from every part of a shocked and anxious nation, the crowds stream to watch the desperate rescue crews fighting against time, battering their way to the barrier of solid rock, while far below, a daring reporter makes his way into the treacherous, crumbling tunnel that is the only lifeline between the helpless victim and the outside world. You'll be out of here by tomorrow morning. No, I won't. He'll never reach me by tomorrow morning. You'll be out of here in 12 hours. Hang on! Kirk Douglas has his greatest role as the reporter who would do anything for a story. Jan Sterling becomes a star of the first rank as the not-so-heartbroken wife of the man buried beneath the mountain. Maybe we'll have a couple of drinks. Maybe you'll even take me out for a big evening, huh? 
Why don't you wash that platinum out of your hair? Phony, below the belt journalism, that's what it is. Not below the belt, right in the gut, Mr. Boot. Human interest. Nothing you've ever seen before has the tremendous human interest of Ace in the Hole. For here is a startling story of human emotions and human desires, played against the most exciting fight to save a man's life ever depicted on the screen. Now, when Smollett comes, you can give him your orders. Tell him to go in through the cliff dwelling, shore it up, and get him out fast. Not through the cliff dwelling. You can't get him out that way anymore. All right, Andy, here we go. Ace in the Hole, 1951, from Billy Wilder, written, directed, and produced by Billy Wilder, a first for him. Uh, starring Kirk Douglas, uh, Jan Sterling, Robert Arthur. Um, it is a, uh, it's an interesting film. Hmm. Yeah. You love it. Is it like top of your list? This, I, I hadn't seen this in a while and I knew I liked it, but it really hit me in all the right ways this time. And this actually shot up so high that I would say it's now landed in my top 20 what? Uh, films. Yeah. This film... I was surprised at how much I just totally, totally fell in love with this film. Everything about it, I just think is just spot on perfect. And I just was mesmerized from beginning to end. I, it's a bittersweet film for me. Uh, I was mesmerized with some of it. And yet a, a fundamental piece of the film, a fundamental piece of the character of the film is missing for me that causes it to just end up sort of empty. Let me read the Criterion synopsis of it because I think it's pretty good. Um, Billy Wilder's Ace in the Hole is one of the most scathing indictments of American culture ever produced by a Hollywood filmmaker. Nothing like a little hyperbolic language to kickstart everything. Synopsis. Uh, Kirk Douglas gives the fiercest performance of his career as Chuck Tatum, an amoral newspaper reporter who washes up in the dead-end Albuquerque, happens upon the scoop of a lifetime and will do anything to keep getting the lurid headlines. Wilder's follow-up to Subset Boulevard is an even darker vision, no-holds-barred expose of the American media's appetite for sensation that has gotten only more relevant with time. So that's what Criterion says. And I think that's, I mean, that's, that's a pretty good synopsis of the film. Is there anything you feel like that left out? No, I think, I think it, it does a pretty, pretty good job. So here's the problem that I have with the film. Um, I, you know, I love the look of it. Um, I, I really, I mean, I love what they do with sort of the landscape uh, and, and the, the sort of role of the landscape in this, uh, in, in this situation. I love that it's not, necess- it's not a strict caper film. Um that it there it's a more insidious sort of crime, a more sort of cultural crime that that is you know painful to watch. the The relationship between the media and the public is not in a great place. You know, sensationalism is obviously rampant as a, as I just read, it is getting more rampant over time. And this film tells a story through the lens of Kirk Douglas's Chuck Tatum, who's this disgraced reporter looking to worm his way back to the top of the heap. And the problem with that is that, when he, as he is going through the motions of manipulating this this uh, uh, scenario, mm-hmm. um, he's the bad guy, right? I mean, he is he's he's the guy that we we are we really we don't like him. We don't like what he's doing. We know how this is inevitably going to end up. There's a guy stuck in a mine. He can't get out of the mine, and Chuck Tatum is manipulating the media to his own benefit uh, at the expense of this man's life underground 
and the media is going crazy. There's a huge, you know, they bring a carnival into the middle of the desert. They've got the uh, bands playing. There's a one wonderful sort of insidious humor that that is just in, interjected throughout it, which is really great. But the problem is all of this happens uh, thanks to this sociopathic reporter. And maybe, uh, maybe I'm just sort of biased, but I feel like the media doesn't need a sociopathic reporter to tell the story of how jaded it is, you know, hmm. like I, I don't, I don't enjoy watching the media be manipulated by this sociopathic reporter because I think the media kind of goes there on its own and maybe he's a, you know, it, it ends up being kind of a hollow journey for me. Interesting. I don't know if it is. Yeah. I, I, you know, I don't know if I, completely agree with that. I, I mean, I definitely agree with the sense that the public is happy to go there on its own. The media is happy to go there on on its own without the manipulation. But I think there is a level of manipulation that can happen. And, and I mean, coming from having worked on our documentary, The Joe Show, and seeing how manipulative they could be with what stories get told and what stories don't get told. Um, I mean, seeing it firsthand, I think, is is, you know, a prime reason to uh, to feel that manipulation definitely happens. In, in the case of our documentary, it wasn't necessarily a news reporter who was manipulating it, but it was it was their PR right, manipulating ma- yeah. manipulating what the media got. Right. Well, and and you know, I don't want to I don't want to make it sound like I believe that these that bad actors don't exist. What I'm saying is, you know, and having worked in a newsroom for a number of years, like I I know that. Uh, I, I guess I feel like the story would have been more interesting had it focused on uh, the the broader role of the press in creating this. Like having one guy who is a sociopath who's doing this for personal gain was l- told less of an interesting story and painted less of a moral lesson to me than had it been a, a discussion of all of the media that has created this, you know, um, I, I think we get a, a much more interesting story as we look at, you know, like network, for example, where we have somebody who's not a, he's not sociopathic, he's lost his mind in some degree, but he's frustrated by what has happened to the world of the media. And, and he's taking action against it. In this case, we have a guy who is actively destroying the media through his actions. And I think as an individual, it's not as strong a story as if we would see as if we got to see um, kind of the whole well, but but I mean, I don't think he's actively setting out to kill this guy. You know, I mean, it, you're making it sound like he is actively trying to kill this guy to no, sell the story. No, and I don't, I I don't necessarily think that's well. That's not what my intention is here. My my intention is that he is what he's doing is he is he is uh, not considering the well being of the guy uh, right. beyond his need for the guy to stay alive so that he can keep the story going for longer. Right. And in the end, get out. Like, I mean, he, he very clearly wants the guy to get out in the end because he wants Because he needs a payoff, ending. right? He needs right. a happy ending. Wants, right, exactly. Yeah, it's it's a dark story. And I, um, I, I mean, I, I guess I can kind of see your point, but at the same time, I I feel that you know, there, there are people out there who are happy to manipulate a situation in order to make it better for themselves. And I think this is a very interesting look at that in the world of the press and how this particular reporter is willing to stoop to a level where he is actively uh, bending the truth. He's embroidering his own truth. And it's an interesting look at 
lies versus what truth you choose to tell. And and I, I, I like that uh, there's this, this uh, dark path that this particular character, Chuck Tatum, takes in order to uh, get his, you know, get his high position back at, 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 a, at a New York paper and, and how he's willing to just kind of, you know, step on people to get there. Um, although I, I also am incredibly fascinated by him because he is this character that is very inspiring also to people. And I mean, you see how people just love him and how even, even his little, uh, his little buddy, the photographer, it just you know loves to kind of be around him and actually is inspired to kind of step out of this dead end job that he uh, es- essentially has at uh, at the uh, the paper in Albuquerque. You know, Herbie is finally able to um, you know start branching out and actually doing something more. And and I I think that there's there's an interesting yin yang with a character like Chuck Tatum that can be so inspiring. And get people out of uh, you know actually actively doing something while also um, showing us the danger of of what can come of that when you cross the line and go too far and it's it's more about you and your needs and what you're getting out of it rather than you know doing your job and actually just putting it out for the people. Yeah, he's masterful and charming, and that is to, much to the credit of Kirk Douglas. I think his performance is actually quite good. Uh, but you made me think of something and sort of the way I'm positioning this argument in my head. And and, and I think I, I get why it didn't connect with me now, that I prefer a story about the darkness of the media to be about the darkness of the media as a whole. And our protagonist is the person showing us the contrast of what it looks like to fight against that norm. And those are the stories that I'm more interested in. Like the media has gone crazy and, you know, all of the press has come and created this massive circus outside of this thing. And everybody is there just the piranhas at the gate. And our protagonist is the character who's saying, wait a minute, something is wrong here. I, you know, somebody has something to fight for. Now, whether he ends up dead at the hands of a stomping crazy mob or whatever, I mean, it can still go dark, but I feel like the lessons are, are, you know, stronger in that context. And in this film, everybody else is really kind of, you know, going along with the flow. They're all, they all seem quite nice. We get some great, you know, some of the great little digs at our sort of cultural fabric at the time. We've got people on a Ferris wheel or, uh, you know, uh, on rides and things outside of this horrible tragedy going on in the mine. Um, and, and yet our, our protagonist is a guy who is, who is machining the whole thing. And I, I think there's, I, I, there's just less of a contrast for us to be able to see what the lessons are. That's where I am. Hmm. I, I don't. I I don't know. I guess I I don't think that there. I I think it's all there. I think it's very easy to see uh, all the lessons. I, I I didn't find any problem finding any of the lessons in it. And uh, although I, you do bring up an interesting point as far as like just the personalities in the film and and our story with our protagonist being this very dark character Chuck Tatum it does make me wonder in a story like this who would we call the antagonist so many of our uh, noir stories up to this point it generally has been the femme fatale in this case I don't think I would call Lorraine the the antagonist of the story Um, she's a very interesting femme fatale in the sense uh, of the word as far as how it's been in in our last few films but she um, she's kind of this this femme fatale by uh 
you know, because of the situation that she's in. She married into it and she's just unhappy. I mean, she's really just living in an unhappy marriage and essentially wants out, sees Chuck Tatum as this way, as this method to actually change her situation. Um, just like Herbie, she kind of latches onto that positive side of him and, and starts seeing stuff, although hers does get a little darker. Um, and eventually she finds a way to escape. But in in her actions, in her attitude, in her uh, relationship with Chuck, she still very much is the femme fatale, even if I still don't think that she's the antagonist. And to that point, and to that end, who would the antagonist be? Is it Boot? I, I don't think he's in it enough to qualify as the antagonist. I mean, maybe you can just say... Chuck is his own antagonist? I'm not quite sure. Wow, I don't even know how to address that. I think you're right. Uh, I, I agree. It's not, uh, it is not uh, Lorraine. Jane, Lorraine. It's not Jane Sterling. It's, it's uh, wow. Um, I, I mean, if anything, you, I guess you could argue it's Leo. It's, it's, and it's what Leo represents. And, and that's, the, that's the fight that Chuck is, you know, he's, he's manipulating uh, psychologically, the whole situation with the antagonist, um, even that I think is a little weak because Leo is really just kind of reluctantly laying there. I don't think he puts up enough of a psychological battle opposite Chuck to get out. No, I totally agree with you. I, he's, he's an object. Uh, we don't have anybody who is actively fighting against Chuck, Right, we really don't. Besides himself, at the very end, when the turn comes and he realizes, he comes to recognize that he has made, uh, you know, I, I don't think he comes to recognize he's made a mistake. He's made a strategic error, and and needs to he needs to rescue his narrative by rescuing Leo. Uh, he has to come to terms with the fact that it's too late that he's missed his ticking clock, which was never really ticking. Like, they never set that up as a thing. But the, the time, the time uh, we've passed the point of no return, and um, it is impossible now to do the, the other easier, more efficient way to get uh, Leo out of the cave, shore up the walls, and, and actually drag him out, because they have been drilling for so long, and they've, they've weakened the mine. And so at that point, he really has to come to terms with the fact that he's killed a man. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at that point, we don't we don't get any sort of. Well, I don't know. I, I get. How do you feel about the the way it plays out after that? I mean, he go. It's sort of the sequence of remorse. His expression of remorse. Mm-hmm. I, I well, I find it pretty powerful. I, I the interesting thing about Chuck is I feel like there's something in him right from the start that knows he's choosing the wrong path, right. Yeah. He, he's definitely immoral because he's aware of what he's doing. He, he knows he's making the wrong choice and goes along with it anyway. And right from the start, as he continues down this path, you can see his anger, like his, his physical expression of anger just kind of continues to rise from early on. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger as if he's hating himself more and more because of what he's doing. Like there's something in him that makes this anger kind of bubble up. And I think it's expressed in some really interesting ways. Like when he grabs her hair in that, that uh, interesting shot right before, you know, I, I suppose I would say it, it becomes the sex scene or at least a kiss uh, in very sadistic Ex- yeah, sort of way, an expression of violence. Uh, yeah, you know the way he kisses her. Yep, and then um, and then it builds to this this end when he realizes that that uh, that Leo is dying and and he's only has one choice now and that's to 
uh, you know, he can't get him out. So he, he basically has to go get the priest in the, in the process, you know, getting, uh, taking it out on Lorraine, nearly killing her, getting stabbed by her. He, then he goes to get the priest, brings him back, has the last rites with Leo as Leo dies, hops on the platform to go up to the top of the mountain. And then he addresses his, his public, um, and uh, I really like that whole sequence. There's, there's a, uh, I mean, I, I really feel like it's almost like he's a dead man from the moment Lorraine stabbed him. And all of that is like, you know, this, this sense of this dead man walking. And it's like the last things that he has to accomplish before he completely dies. And I find it really compelling how just kind of, driven he is like there's nothing else for him at this point it's just kind of this slow slog as he pushes himself along i uh, agree with you there and i think from the point that point from the point of violence against lorraine you know and, and and i love that exchange too because the way that happens we know something has happened right we had already seen the the uh, the scissors had been spotlighted on the bed right we we'd seen those very clearly we saw her hand reach back for them we don't actually see the the stab itself it's it's hidden he does a you know he he kind of hides it but there is that that kind of crunchy sound the stabby crunchy sound uh, <laughs> and then he kind of backs up there's that look of kind of awareness she it, she has this wonderful look of just kind of fear and and curiosity which uh, I thought was really powerful and it's I, I'm not a fan of her performance in this film but that sequence I thought was really quite good that that look of maniacal curiosity I, I don't know what I just did but it felt kind of good and now I don't know what's going to happen next I really enjoyed that um, and then you're right he goes off and this is his this becomes his penance and for me this is where the film gets you know more interesting than the rest of it I'd like the way as you said he he's that dead man walking I thought that was a really nice touch and and um, you know all the way up to the to the final moments of the film I thought were were really terrific as he he goes back to work and he he you know tells his his little buddy to to uh, you know herbie to sit down that's your desk and then he falls, you know, that was, that's just a really powerful way to end the film. Well, especially with the parallels between him and Leo, which I find so fascinating. I mean, you know, right from the start, Chuck is essentially the same as Leo. He is, is buried in this place and he can't escape, right? He is stuck and, and uh, wants to get out and is trying to find a way out. And so it's a very interesting parallel between him and Leo um, and how, uh, there's this great shot right toward the end with Leo uh, where all, the dirt kind of keeps falling on him and Leo's face just is so blackened from kind of all the dirt and everything that he's just kind of become this shadow of a man laying there under the mountain. And right there at the end when Chuck has his last little speech um, to boot about, uh, you know, you can have me for nothing and he collapses on the floor, his face falls into shadow and he essentially has become Leo buried under the mountain. I think that there's just this incredible symbolism comparing these two characters all through it that I find really fascinating. That's a really nice touch. I hadn't actually hadn't thought through it that way. I really uh, that's a really nice parallel. Yeah, and it's um it it just runs all the way through just the 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 shadows of everything and and right from the start you see the film beginning with all the credits just on on dirt. You know, you just see this this dirt 
uh, just right. sitting there, and you just feel like right from the start we're just buried under it. And uh, you know, this this is something that I think is really interesting in the noir that we've kind of touched on a little bit, but um, so much of the others have have involved crime. There's this. Um, there's just a, a dark psychology in film noir that I, I think does kind of run through so many of these films that I think is is so important to touch on and how um, it doesn't have to necessarily be this this uh, you know let's kill my husband sort of story but just this dark psychology of of what people can do and I think that's why this is a, a wonderful representation of film noir is that that Chuck is in this dark place and he's willing to go to this this level of keeping uh, this man buried underground for seven days in order to get a great story out of it and uh, it's it's this incredible dark psychology that makes this uh, a, a really beautiful uh, beautifully dark film noir i i agree with you although i would i would just add that this really at its core is also a let's kill my husband story i mean it's not as if lorraine is is looking to really do right by leo as he's sitting underground well yeah i don't think she cares one way or the other if he gets out or not she just uses this as a way yeah as a way to get away um Yeah. yeah so but i do i do agree with you and i think this is a great example of that that when you take the caper away from these films the that it defines the stereotype of film noir. What you get is is a a film in which at no point do better angels step in. It, it, this is a film about what happens when no one listens to um, their their best judgment, and I think that it's, makes it really interesting to see how the pieces fall together. Well, it's a, it's a tragedy looking at. I mean, this is a man making really poor decisions to get this story, but then it's this tragedy looking at everybody else in the film just going right along with it. All of the other reporters, they're only there to get the same story. None of them think to look at, at Chuck and if Chuck might be involved in a darker undercover thing, like between you know, this, the whole deal that Chuck's made between him and the sheriff and the whole reason that they're mining from the top. I mean, all of this stuff, they're just, they just want to get the hot story just like Chuck does. They don't even think to go that way. All of these people coming to look. I mean, the Federbers, I think, are a wonderful representation of America. These guys are more interested in, in uh, well, they're, they're there to see the story and to kind of, you know, teach their children something. But at the same time, when they're getting interviewed, Al Federber cares more about uh, the fact that he was the first one there. He and his family were the first people at the site rather than Leo. You know, it's, right. it, it's, it's all about the attention and it's, it's, it's getting that press and, and getting your time in the spotlight. And I mean, even Leo, when, when Chuck talks to him about the paper and stuff, you know, Leo's, so it, it's almost like lifts his spirit so much just to think, wow, all these people are here just for me. It's, you know, it, it's such an interesting um, way of looking at uh, people and how people react to that moment in the spotlight and how it can become addicting. And I mean, we certainly saw that with Sheriff Joe when we were working with him. And Chuck is the exact same. I mean, I think that he cares. Well, he proves it to us by his conversation with the head of the New York paper. It's not just about the paycheck. It's about having that desk back at that office. Right. Having it's, the it's honor. That status. It's the status. Right. Right. Um, I let's let's talk a little bit about Billy. Mm, yes. Shall Good we? Billy, Billy. Billy Wilder. 
Uh, this film, uh, this comes off of um, off of Sunset Boulevard, was right below before this. Is that right? Yep. Um, which was uh, it was a pretty terrific film, Sunset pretty Boulevard. Terrific. Uh, this film did not do as well. No, this film was, I, I think, his biggest uh, box office uh, flop. Yeah. Why do you think that is? It's dark. This is a really dark film. And, and uh, you know, Billy, uh, Kirk Douglas, a lot of people have talked about what they think happened. I mean, this is a film that is just scathing toward journalists and a lot of critics, uh, you know, because of that. It's it's like they they like stories that, that examine the dark side of people unless it's their own people. They have a hard time, you know, acknowledging that. I mean, that's, yeah. I, I think, a big part of it. And also, it was just it was just a very dark story for people to to watch. You know the 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 dark things that people would do. I think it came out at a time where people just didn't want to, uh, maybe didn't want to see that sort of story. And it's uh, I, I think it says a lot that um, in Europe it was received really well. It won a bunch of awards at, uh, at the Venice Film Festival. It really uh, it, it just it is a film that. Uh, I just don't think people were ready for. I, it's a funny thing. I mean, you're thinking about sort of what was going on at the time. It, and I think to your point, I, we've talked about this before. I, you know, I look at these films and in many ways, if you're there, you know, this is Billy Wilder holding a mirror right up to us. saying, I want you to look at this and I'm going to make it big and, and I'm going to put big signs on it. And it's going to, I'm, it's going to be incredibly hyperbolic and it may seem ridiculous at points, but it's because I want you to look at this message and this is really important. This is my voice and I'm showing you what I think of the world right now. But when you're holding up that mirror to the people who are holding the mirror, you know, <laughs> like that's not, that that's often doesn't make a good uh, uh, good sense. But we're looking at you know this was uh, kind of we're still integrating at this point, 1951. Uh, we're still integrating the you know ten and a half million people who had returned from the war. We're we're dealing with like this boom bust sort of economy. We're dealing with. Um, this in, incredible, um, you know, uh, incredibly large workforce and uh, precious jobs to keep them occupied. Like there was, there was a lot of turmoil going on in in the world in people's homes. And I think one of the, you know, one of the things that that happens when you're looking at a film like this that that has no caper. And I think this is this is central for at least my understanding of the film. Once you get rid of the caper, it becomes much, much more real. And when you're looking at the press, something that people have an understanding of, whether it's right or wrong, they they see their papers every day. It seems like a real, tangible thing. Uh, once you once you remove the drama of the caper and you make this a a profession that we can that we can re- reach out and touch in our own ways, that makes it much less appealing in a time of cultural struggle. Uh, and I that that to me is one potential reason why this film didn't meet with uh, with instant box office success here. We were having a hard time, and it's a hard time to make a movie about hard times. What do if you think? it says if it says anything, the best picture of the year was an American in Paris. It says a lot. It says a lot. All right. I, I don't think I, I think it took a long time for I, I think it really you know I'd have to go back and look at all of the different um, uh, best picture winners and nominees, but I really feel like it took some time into the seventies, probably Vietnam, 
before uh, people were ready to kind of look at darker stories and, and, and well, it, on a bigger scale, as far as like, you know, the, the box, the box office, um, the bo- the big ones, you know, I just don't think people were wanting to see such a dark story. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, I think that's a good point. I'll, you know, and, or a dark story that is so, you know, practical. I mean, we have high noon, um, we have, gosh, <laughs> Roman holiday, Oh, 1953 we had two wins, didn't we? Roman Holiday and Shane. Well, this was this was 1951 though. I know, I'm just going through the 50s. Oh, yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah. Roman Holiday? No, that didn't win best picture. Why does that have a star by it on the Academy Awards site? I don't know. What does that mean when they get a little star? Oh, oh no, that doesn't mean. That, that's not what that means. <laughs> that means something different. All right. <laughs> They've they have a they yeah, have a I legend. Think- I think it went from An American in Paris to The Greatest Show on Earth, which yeah. I think is one of the worst Best Picture winners. Right, and from um, here to eternity. But, you know, but it's, they're all like these you know, really shiny, I mean, I don't know about uh, if From Here to Eternity fits quite so much, but... On the waterfront, Marty, your favorite. More, yeah, there, there you go. Yeah, I just don't, yeah, I, I don't think it was uh, quite the time for this movie. Yeah. I, in many ways, I think this movie was ahead of its time. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. All right, uh, you, do you want to talk any more about Kirk? Um, Kirk is great. I mean, he's he's just fantastic to watch. This is, uh, I think, this was his. Um, he he had started like what? What do we say? It was his second film when when he was in. Um, uh, uh, what did we talk about last week? Out of the past. Yeah, uh, that was his second film, and his uh, his first big chance to really uh carry a film was 1949 um that was champion and that was a uh, you know another dark story he is a um that one is about boxer midge kelly rising to fame mainly by stepping on other people and so i think kirk douglas really had a, a penchant for playing darker characters characters that he could really get into and so this was only a couple years after that i mean it was a he had three films in 1951 so it was a busy year for him but I, I, I think that uh, something that I've always loved about him, aside from his just, uh, just over the topness and his bravado and just his, you know, and his dimply chin, um, is just <laughs> is is just. I mean, he just bites onto a roll and just just goes whole hog, and it's just. I always have such a great time uh, watching him and just you know seeing him carry a film, and I think he's just perfect in this role of this guy who's just gone down a really dark path, hates himself for it, but continues to go down it and is really, you know, just destined for a disaster. I think he plays it so well. I have such a great time watching him in this film. And uh, yeah, I, I just think he's great. Did you know that his name is Isur Danielovich Demsky, by the way? Wow, I did not know that. Yeah. Isur Danielovich Demsky. Yeah. Wow, that's great. I can <laughs> I can see maybe why he didn't uh he didn't <laughs> stick with that. Why he gave it a switcheroo. Yeah. Wow. That's a great name. <laughs> uh okay, let's uh let's talk just about uh, briefly about um about uh Lorraine, Jan Sterling. Jan Sterling. Oh, I yes. thought she was a drip. That's interesting because I, I think that that's her character. 
I find her so interesting to watch because I find her such a uh, I don't want to say uh, lethargic, but she's just <laughs> you said it, you said it, and I'm recording. That's a great way to define her character. And I think generally, lethargy on screen is not a uh, a good uh, strategy to create, uh, what's the word, uh, drama. Yeah, but but I don't think it is lethargy. I, I find there's there's something about her that is just like, it's bitter and weary is kind of what I find her. And I don't know. I just, I was, and maybe it's, you know, I just, it, this film just hit me on all the right levels this time because I was just... I felt she was perfect, and I really just loved this, this, um, uh, this, this bitter uh, anger kind of wallowing under her, and just kind of looking for a way out, latching onto any opportunity to get out. I uh, really enjoyed her in this, and you know, I mean, she's an Oscar-nominated actress. A few years later, she was nominated for the High and the Mighty, right? So. Right. I, I yeah, and I'm not saying that I don't like the character. I really uh, maybe it's her performance in it that I find difficult to watch or maybe I find that she was given a character that was uh, that was empty. Um but I found her interactions with anyway, I mean even up to when he starts to strangle her with the rat fur coat <laughs> for that uh-huh. the rat fur stole. Uh I I found it was not compelling until she stabs him and we get to see that transformation in the bedroom uh i I find her just she drags every scene that i'm watching her and i'm just uh waiting for it to be over well you would uh have to argue with the national board of review because they um gave her the the best actress award that's that's really unfortunate that they are that they were bought off i'm sure they were paid She went. Oh. She went from here to Guiding Light. You know that nineteen fifty two. That's on, interesting. She was on Guiding Light. Yeah. Um, in addition to a obviously a substantial list of credits through nineteen eighty eight, she's she was still acting. Oh yes, very busy actress. Very busy actress. So I, I have not seen much of her other stuff. Um, what else? I mean, she, she, she was in. She played Judge Sheffield in Three's Company. <laughs> Well, I guess I've seen that. Yeah, it's surprising a lot of TV stuff that I am certain to have seen her in. Yeah, uh, that I just uh, yeah, but uh, I don't know. I, I feel like just scrolling through her her list. I yeah, I don't think I've seen much of it. Not much. Mm-hmm. Anyway, all right. Um, let's see. Who else would you like to talk about? Um, Anybody else in the cast that you feel like we need to make special note? Well. Uh, I think we should mention Porter Hall. Oh, we should probably do that. Mr. Boot. He uh, popped up in Double Indemnity as well. He did. He was the man on the train. Ah. Uh, you know, I'd forgotten you actually made note that we were going to be talking about Porter Hall again. I did? I think you did. Because <laughs> you you know these things. Oh, that I forgot. <laughs> Seriously. Oh, that's so funny. But he's he's one of those faces. He's one of those supporting actors who is just in everything. He was in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington back in the 30s. Uh, he was just in, um, he was in Going My Way. I'm just kind of scrolling through his stuff. Miracle on 34th Street. He's one of those faces that you recognize. Uh, he's just a very great face that works so well as a supporting character. And so it's definitely nice to just see him popping up here and there. He is. He's. Uh, it, it was fun to watch him and his interactions with Kirk Douglas. I think are are uh, 
amusing, uh, particularly that the um, <laughs> the opening sequence. Can you just walk through the opening sequence where Chuck Tatum introduces himself to the newspaper? Well, I think it's just a a. a I mean, it's very very loud. I think is 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 Chuck Tatum's way. Um, but I, I, you know, first of all, this is another interesting point. Is I love how Chuck is always making stories work for him. And I think that there's no better um, way to symbolize that than how he manipulates a typewriter. One to get uh, to get Herbie's attention by pushing the button so it dings like a like a bell on his desk. Right. And two to use it to light his matches for his cigarettes. Like that was is, so classy. I know. Like, I wanted always... to go get the Smith Corona out just for that. <laughs> and I don't smoke. Just to light the match with it. So good. But it's 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 a great way to show this guy is always ready to manipulate a story. He uses stories to his advantage. And I just love that about him. But the whole introduction to Boot, I think, is great. Presaged by the fantastic embroidered tell the truth um uh thing on the on the wall <laughs> outside of his door, which is wonderful to see that there. And uh, also as a man who wears both belt and suspenders because he just, you know, <laughs> he doesn't trust the situation, you know. And uh, I, there's so much great stuff that you see about Boot. But I think it's really interesting because Boot is, while you could say he represents truth and honesty and the right way, I think there's also this level, and this is why I find it really interesting, these these personalities here. There's an interesting yin-yang between them because Boot also is kind of this dead, uh, you know, uh, re- represents this dead paper where nothing is happening. It's just withering and, and kind of dying in Albuquerque. They're going to report on, you know, the rattlesnake, uh, the annual rattlesnake hunt and nothing that's interesting. And... I find that so interesting that Boot is all about telling the truth, but he is, uh, but it's it's portrayed in his office as inactivity and passivity. I think you're right, and I think we get this in that in their first conversation when Charles comes in and says, "Mr. Boot, I was passing through Albuquerque. I had breakfast here. I read your paper, and I thought you'd be interested in my reaction." Indeed, I am. Boot says, "Well, to be honest, it made me throw up." <laughs> <laughs> which is fantastic. Uh, I, I don't mean to tell you I was expecting the New York Times, but even for Albuquerque, this is pretty Albuquerque. And Boot says, not that he's necessarily interested in the truth, not that he's willing to get this feedback, but he reaches in the drawer and he pulls out uh, his box and he says, all right, here's your nickel back. Because right. that was the value of that exchange, right? I, I'm not right. interested. What that says is, I'm not interested in your feedback. I'm not even interested in debate. That ship has sailed. And uh, really, I'm I'm just interested in you figuring out how to make me more money, which is what he goes on to say. You know, tell me about this two hundred fifty dollars, um, and you know, otherwise, I need you to to you know take off. Which I thought you know is interesting. I think that's a good uh, a good way to look at his role. He's representative of the old. Yeah, it's it's very it's very passive, and I found that to be an interesting yin-yang in his character. And I love how he and Chuck both have an interesting yin-yang giving their character uh, a better 
fleshed out sense i found i i think so too and he ends up you know ultimately betraying the old um you know betraying the old by selling out to the big new york uh new york paper and and um you know that that is another kind of milestone in their transformation in that sort of yin yang as he jumps off the wheel well, an interesting element of of boot is is the, you know as somebody who wants to report the truth and this this may have worked better for you um giving him more of that antagonist role for chuck of getting suspicious that something was going on and actively working to uncover the truth yeah yeah, I think that's astute. I don't mean astute. I don't know what that is. I, I like to be astute. <laughs> I remember when I was astute. I don't like to be the astute. No, <laughs> no. One among many. Uh, I think you have a good point, but I've lost the thread. What was your point? The the fact that, uh, well, just saying that Boot is really, it makes for a great antagonist that may not have been um, utilized as well as as the writers could have utilized him. Yes, I remember now. I agree. Yes, you did. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> that was good. Uh, okay. From uh, Porter Hall, uh, you know, we've talked a little bit about Robert Arthur as uh, Herbie, the photographer. He's he's a fun little sidekick. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about the uh, uh, Federbers. Ah, uh, uh, yes, yes, yes. Frank Frank Katie as the uh, as Mr. Federber, who uh, he you know is somebody who popped up in Green Acres and uh, Rear and Window, I, yeah, Rear Window, Petticoat Junction, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, he's a and he's the million another dollar one of those duck. faces, yeah, <laughs> he is another one of those faces, and he's been in a lot of TV, a lot of TV, um, and uh, finally we have uh, let's see, Leo, we haven't really talked about Richard Benedict, right. Uh, as Leo, yeah, he's also uh, a, a robust catalog. He does have a robust catalog, and he's uh, there's a, another. What is that great noir that he's in? Crossfire. It's Crossfire. Crossfire. That's, that's, yeah, <laughs> but you know what's funny is that he did. I mean, it, you know, this is one of the things that his bio points out. He was given. Uh, he he has a look that you don't get to see in this film very well, but his look is is kind of the tough guy look. And, uh, you know, he was in uh, Hawaii Five-0. He was in, you know, he's, he's in a lot of these more tough guy roles. And, uh, but in this film, you don't get that. You get, you get him in a weakened state. He's only laying down in the dirt the entire time. And he has a couple of sort of menacing outbursts. But otherwise, he's, he is a, he's a weakened character. And I thought he did a terrific job uh, in what has to have been challenging circumstances. I kept wondering how he goes to the bathroom. <laughs> That's just how how uncomfortable that has to be for seven days, <laughs> laying in that one spot. How stinky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no one ever made a comment about the stench. <laughs> right. That is a really... That's like, a... walk up to... How you doing? Like, woo! Whoa! Wow! Wow! Uh... Terrible. That's terrible. Oh, that is funny. Uh, anyhow, so that was Richard Benedict, the Italian, and and Ray Teal, the sheriff. I think is uh, I think he's great. I think he represents that uh, corrupt sheriffs that I that I know so well. With <laughs> 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 his rattlesnake in a box. Just, that just that was one it. of the funniest little side bits that he actually 
caught the baby rattlesnake and was feeding it steak. <laughs> Whatever he could. Whatever he could. Chewing gum, but only if yeah. it's still in the silver wrapper. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty good. He uh he's been in a lot of interesting stuff. Um and uh his boy his filmography is extensive. Of of the batch, he's the one that breaks 300. Yeah. Uh and um uh he's played a lot of ranchers, a lot of sheriffs. Um but he was also in Judgment at Nuremberg. Um Right. You know, right. he's he, he's he's been around. Uh I I thought his exchange when he is talking with the press and they're really grilling him on why Chuck gets to go into the mine and they don't get to go into the mine. I mean, you already brought this up. There's a, there's that sort of, uh, cultural element, which is, you know, we're, we're the media and we want, you know, we want what everybody else gets. Um, but his, his response was such a wonderful sort of legal brick wall. Um, that just saying over and over again, it's off limits. It's off limits or out of bounds. I can't remember what he said. No. What was the word? He no, said over sure. and over. What? I'm not sure. Oh, you're not sure either. All right. Uh, anyhow, I thought it was just a really, um, it was just a great role. I think he's he is an interesting character. Definitely. Definitely. All right. All right. Um, I do want to mention the music, because that one's been on my mind all day. Oh, yes. I Well, I loved the music. I did, too. I love the music, and I, I, this is Hugo, Hugo Friedhofer mm-hmm. uh, did the music, and he was fantastic. It was just a great, great, great score. He's, uh, he's been all over the place in terms of his involvement in great scores, but this one, um, I thought it was just really well used, and his, uh, his adaptation of that central theme, it comes back over and over and over again, either in a different rhythm or a different key or a different orchestration. I mean, it's just really clever use of that main central theme that we meet in the very opening credits. And I thought it was just great. I couldn't get it out of my head. It's a, a really wonderful score. Well, and I, I like how he integrates that song that gets written for Leo. Yes. You know, uh, which became a little, uh, you know, earworm for me for a a little while after I saw this movie, just walking around, oh, Leo. That <laughs> and, was a funny uh, bit, too, as they were, it starts yeah. out as a as a close-up on the uh, the country singer singing the song, and as they pull out, you see somebody right next to him with a hat on that says, you know, 25 cents <laughs> per sheet music, and she's selling the sheet music to the song that they wrote to commercialize right. Leo. I thought it was just great. It's, 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 <laughs> and it's so true. It's mm. just so true. People will just latch on to whatever they can to make a buck right. and or a quarter in this case, but it was just uh it was dark and really interesting and um i I loved how he took that tone, which is a very cheery chipper song, but was able to kind of find the darker tones for it and integrate it at times into the music as well. yes, totally agree. Hugo did some great work. Yeah. There was a, a conversation that Billy Wilder had with Hugo about the, the about the music because Billy Wilder um, initially was a little upset with Hugo that he didn't have enough themes in here, like just themes that you could hum. And Hugo, uh, he he said, Billy, he's like, well, Billy, what? You want me to soften the blow? And I think that's all it took to sell Wilder on keeping the music the way it was because it does have an incredible like blow to your gut as you're listening. I think the music is just so effective in delivering on on all counts. Yeah, it really stands out. Yeah. Uh, cinematography, uh, Charles Lang. How do you feel about the camera? 
I really liked it in this. Not just, uh, I mean, Wilder is not somebody who ever wanted the camera in interesting angles. He always believed that the camera needs to be, you know, where people are and doesn't want any crazy camera work. He really kind of kept it pretty straightforward. To that end, though, I think Lang really knew how to manipulate the light and shadow to create a this dark and, and noirish world. There's just incredible use of shadow all through, whether it's it's shadow in situations like when they're in the mine or in a room and, and you know, just the lights from the room or when somebody else's shadow crosses somebody else, uh, over somebody else. And there's, there's some beautiful shots. Like there's a great shot of Lorraine as she's talking to Chuck and Chuck's face just falls into shadow that is really haunting as you can kind of get a sense that, you know, he is in this darker place. And one of my favorite shots in the film is toward the end when, when Chuck is talking with, with um, Herbie and he's, 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 you know, this is a point where he's about to die and nobody's believing him because he's got his ace in the hole now, which is the fact that he wants to sell his story the fact that this reporter who created this whole thing, which I think is, an incredible little bit there but he looks at herbie and is like you believe me don't you and his face crosses over herbie's herbie's face and herbie's face just is covered by this shadow of chuck that as as herbie says yes i believe you and i'm like man that is just an incredible way to play with the the shadows in a scene like that where you just see this this character who's been really positive and and you know he i don't know if he fully understands what chuck's doing i think he can get a sense of of something askew with with chuck's methodologies but at the same time herbie is kind of getting a chance to get his photos seen and and become national get national attention but then when he finally gets this story from Chuck as to what Chuck's really been doing and just that shadow on his face really I think said everything to me. I think so too. That's a great way to great way to frame that sequence. Uh speaking of camera movement, I think you're you're right. There are it's it's a really uh I, I would say conservative camera generally. Um and, and yet there is a sequence in the in the beginning that gives me such a wonderful sense of place. Uh it's when they pull over the car and you know this great old convertible and they pull over the car and they pick up Lorraine and they drive down this road and the camera is really really high must be on on some sort of a nice tall kind of boom mount uh, on the car as they drive down this road and you get a sense of just where these mountain caves are in relationship to the to the um, you know to the restaurant slash you know general store and and I just love that it's like a sweet little sequence and I found myself thinking about it all day long like it's just a great uh, great use of bodies, it right framed right in the middle. It's very sort of photographic, and and um, I really like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, did you um, did they look like real car shots to you, or did they look like they might have been process shots? Hmm. Well, this one, I, I, this one did. This one, and I actually remember thinking about that. I thought this is this looks like they are they're driving up this road. I mean, it didn't look like process shot to me. Yeah, yeah. Did it to yeah. you? I mean, is that what you're saying? You think I'm uh, no? I'm, I'm just curious. But I'm just curious because I know at the time I don't think uh, I don't I don't think there was a lot. In fact, next week when we talk about uh, uh, you know to give people uh, a hint, but touch of evils next week. And um, my understanding was that that was one of the first films where they actually filmed 
a uh, like people in a car. Yeah, there's no way that this was a process shot. Uh, right. I'm just looking at it again with the car bouncing like it is. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh yeah, it looks pretty authentic to me. So um yeah, well, interesting. Mhm. Well, so much for touch of evil. That's right. Mhm. Ace in the hole totally totally takes the cake. Although I will say the thing that doesn't uh, make it look authentic to me of the sh- of the two shot of them in the back seat mm-hmm. is the fact that we're looking straight out the back of the car and right. we're not seeing the road behind them. The car is the car yes. would have to be driving at a very weird angle to make that work. Well, that's true. Are you looking? Are we looking at thinking of the same sequence though? I mean, are you looking at it's, the one? It's, it's right after they pick her up. Okay, so yeah, all right. And first, you have that great shot where it looks like the camera is mounted on the back of the car yes overhead but then it immediately cuts to two shot which is probably them, processed which, which looks like process shot yeah. the more i look at it it doesn't look like there's any way that the road they would be moving the wrong way in order for that shot Ex- to make sense. exactly and that's why I, th- I you know i i really was thinking about that high arm shot that's the one i was really really more excited about i in the cars didn't didn't feel all, um, as much as yeah, interesting although right. some of them are i, I guess I don't know. It, it was does. done it well. The one behind it, it actually reminds me of the shot from Out of the Past because uh, we see a very similar shot. It, it has that GoPro feel almost. Yes. Because um, Out of the Past begins that way. When we first meet Stefano, You're right. as he's coming into town, we see that same high angle shot. I don't know if it's quite this high, but that same behind him shot on the car as he's rolling into town. Yep. Oh, man, that's interesting. Uh yeah, so it's a, I I enjoyed the um, the camera on this one, Charles. Yeah, Lennon. we'll be talking about him again. Excellent. Yes. Uh, anybody else stands out to you that you really really want to talk about as we? Well, I I, uh, I don't know how much I have to say, but um, it did get nominated for uh, best story and screenplay uh, for best uh, at the Academy Awards, and that was for Billy Wilder and his two co-writers, Lesser Samuels, not the Greater Samuels, the Lesser <laughs> Samuels. And Walter Newman. That's just terrible. He's never heard that before. uh, I've never Uh, heard that. (laughs) That was the first. Uh, Yes. But uh, obviously, as we said, it didn't, uh, it was not, I mean, I was surprised it actually got nominated for anything considering it it seemed like people just didn't want uh, this movie to exist really at the time. I mean, even the head of the studio renamed it The Big Carnival to try to uh, trick people into seeing it, thinking it might be a different movie playing. (laughs) Because I guess movies with big in the title, like The Big Steel, uh, big was a, a a word in titles, like the, the Big Clock, The Big Sleep, that somehow made it seem like a crime movie. And so the you know, head, of, uh, head of the studio thought, well, maybe they'll think it's a crime movie and they'll go see it if it's called The Big Carnival, but it didn't work. But I think what's what the most interesting thing about that is that he changed the name without telling Billy. Yeah, right. Yeah. Probably not. Not a good relationship move. No, not You're really. You're cultivating your best relationships with your creative partners. That's not. <laughs> that's not. not that's like step, like the last step after yes. all other steps. Anti-step. <laughs> uh, in terms of, did you find out anything about uh, the money? Uh, all I found was the budget. I, I couldn't find anything as far as how much it made or didn't make as the case may be. But this film uh, did cost about $1.8 million to make. Of that, I heard that Billy got 250000 of that. So in today's dollars, it's, a, it's about a $16.3 million budget. 
and uh, at two hundred fifty thousand, that means Billy got two point two million for it. So, all right, so it good. did all right for him. It did all right for him, and you know, Billy says that this is his best movie. He, uh, you know, he and I are in the same camp on that. After uh, after um, watching this again, this bumped all the way up to the top of my Billy Wilder list. Wow. I need to go watch my Billy Wilder again because I just can't bring myself to agree. Well, and you know, that's, that's okay. I just, uh, yeah, I, I really connected with this film. I think it was a solid, solid film. I hear it. I hear it in your voice. A lot of passion. Mm. All right. Let's rank it. Can we? Let's do it. All right. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, everybody. And you can see our stack rankings of our very favorite films. I think we're up to one. This is 183. This one is uh, this is is going to be uh, one sorry, one eighty. One eighty. How is that possible? Well, I guess we I, we've done this. We've been down this. Uh, been on this rodeo before. Uh, so that's what you need to do, and you should friend us and like us and hang out with us there on Flickchart, and and uh, let's just see if our stack rankings add up to your stack rankings. Andrew, let's do it. Let's do it. All right, Ace in the Hole or Hot Fuzz? Hot Fuzz. I'll do Ace in the Hole on this one. Okay, I'm going to give it to you because I'm not that. I'm sort of <laughs> joking because Hot Fuzz is on Netflix today, and I got kind of excited about that. Well, hot. I mean, I love Hot Fuzz. It's so much fun to watch, but Ace in the Hole, just it's a punch in the gut in the best way. Ace in the Hole or Sleepless in Seattle? I am back at Ace in the Hole. All right. Ace in the Hole or Double Indemnity? Double indemnity. Noir Billy Wilder action going on here. I am ace in the hole. I'm I'm really double indemnity on this one. Like we're gonna how? have to, we're gonna, we're gonna we're have gonna to rock, it. paper, scissors this one. Oh right, yeah. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. One, one two, two, three, three. water. <laughs> water. I think I just <laughs> All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to uh, do, do that again. I what is this game? What is this? this is not that funny. I misspoke. All right. Rock, paper, scissors, water. It's a diff- it's a variant of the game that we used to play in Prague when I was a boy. And I this is not that funny. All right, are you ready? Have you controlled yourself? Elephant. <laughs> oh, it's awesome. There's only three oh. choices, right? Okay. Uh, yes, let's try it again. Ready? All right. Okay. One <laughs> Two, two, three, scissors. scissors. Okay. Ooh, look at that. One, One two, two, three, three rock. Paper. Yes. You cheated. I did not cheat. You I read my cheat. mind. That's cheating. Yes, I, I did read your mind. Hey, I will say something that I forgot to mention is Mr. Federber yes. works for works for the the all all risk uh, company that uh, Fred McMurray's character works for in Double Indemnity. From Double Indemnity. Yeah. Excellent, excellent catch. A nice little nod. Yes. Now here's one that's a little tougher for me. Ace in the hole or Brazil? <laughs> Brazil. I will do Brazil. It's not that tough. Ace in the hole or million dollar baby? Uh, million dollar baby. I would do ace in the hole, but I'm going to give you million dollar baby. All right, thank you. It's very kind of you. Ace in the hole or the Matrix? The Matrix. Man, I was just listening to the Matrix music at work today. Really it's like that. it was meant to be. Yeah, 
but I'm torn. I, I feel like I want to go with Ace in the Hole, but I, I actually am going to give you the Matrix. I'll All give right. you the Matrix on this one. Ace in the Hole or the Fisher King? Well, I'm I'm Fisher King, but I could be swayed. Mm. No, I'm really the Fisher Mighty King. Fine, Mighty fine Terry Gilliam. It really, I, it's fine. I, I'm not. I'm, 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 I'm going to do Fisher King. Yeah. All right, Ace in the Hole or the French Connection? French Connection. I'm actually going to go Ace in the Hole on this one. Are you serious? Surprisingly, I am. All right, rack it up. Rock, I, paper, scissors, I, water. Yeah, I, I just, there's, there's you know, I, I think so much going on in this film. There's like so much being said, so much to think about in this film. And French Connection, don't get me wrong, is a fantastic, fantastic kick-ass film. But Ace in the Hole just, I mean, just really kind of stirred my brain. So Stir your brain. I know my brain needed a good stirring. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> All uh, right, rack it up. All right, here we go. Ready? Mm-hmm. One, One, two, two three. three. Rock. Paper. Damn. Suck it. All right. Well, there you go. Number twenty-three. She's too high. Ah, whatever. <laughs> you cynic. Too high. But all right. I think it's too low. I'm going to be working on moving that down. Every <laughs> every movie we do from now on is going to be my top 20 favorite movie ever. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> all right. Well, this was good. So you've already hinted at where we're going from here, but I think you should hint some more. Yes, we're going to uh, tap into little Orson Welles, and we're going to watch his wonderful film, Touch of Evil. The O-Dub. As we call them in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. The O-Dub. Are you going to uh, watch both versions, you think? Uh, we'll see on time. Yeah. I guess that's a good question. So if, if I don't, what we should we should, we should should talk about that, right? We should plan that. Which if version you are you going to watch? Oh, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really push to watch both of them. Um, so, but I would say if you aren't going to be able to watch both, just focus on watching the re-edited version that was released in 98. Okay. All right. I'll do it. Excellent. I will do it. All right. You better. I think that's all we've got to say. Don't forget, we've got a a special film board coming up. It's going to be a full house. We've got everybody. Everybody's going to be there. All the people talking about Child 44, which may or may not earn everybody. That's right. So we'll see. All right. Uh, that's it. That's all I got. I got to go to bed. All right. I'm going to go uh, find a pot buried in this uh, big hole I found in the backyard. I think it's an old Indian ruin. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and go first because I feel like yours is going to need to settle in. Okay, that sounds uh, good. Mine's easy and it falls right in line with what uh, with with what I feel like from Paul 
He gives it a three-star review. He says, it's too wicked for his taste. Many of Billy Wilder's movies are top-notch, in Paul's opinion, but this one doesn't deliver. Its lead character is just too ambitious and uncaring for this story to be rewarding to the viewer. Unsympathetic characters have their place in movies, but usually there are a few more moments where we can see the humanity behind the cold-blooded front. So there you go. Wow. Paul has a uh, remarkably... Uh, sane approach for an Amazon commenter. Yeah, well you don't done, see that Paul. Very often. It's really rational <laughs> and uh, well done. <laughs> Please tell me and yours, then the, and then there's mine. Well, this is, I think, a nice uh, uh, reminder of last week's show uh, because this also by Judith Perry, Oreo lover, who gave it one star and said, "This is stashed as a Christmas gift." That's all she has to say. I think we had some good reminders last week from folks about, you know, what an awful gift giver she is if she waits for her one star uh, movies to come along before deciding to give give it out. There's a few good comments, which I think is the joy of reading her wonderful, wonderfully short reviews. Uh, Steve Cohn says, this review shows why I don't support the right to vote by, by everyone. But then I come back to Churchill's great quote about democracy. So it's <laughs> just good that he has that in mind. And then Judy Fryer uh, says, uh, you appear to mistakenly believe, believe this is a place for reminders about your gifts. The least you can do is not always give the films on your list of personal notes just one star. And then Mojo Navigator says, why did you actually put this up? In what way did you think this would be helpful to anyone? And what makes you think any of us care whether this is a gift or not? This is a public forum, not your personal diary. Also, you cannot possibly so be so stupid that you don't understand that the purpose of the review system is to review the item and select the relevant star that reflects your opinion. Bottom line, if you don't know anything about a product, don't put up a review, especially a one-star one. Poor Judith. I actually would say that I, I think I think will be a gift is a fair commentary for a film you don't like. <laughs> but this it is, does say a lot about you as a gift giver it really does it says that you are a terrible <laughs> gift giver but it doesn't say and i would like to add that if you go to you can click right through to uh jp's uh other reviews and the only other one star thing that is on there is for a uh, gray dickens victorian men's cape which gets a, a hearty thumbs down saying this cape was not at all what it was described to be. I didn't take it out of the wrapper and returned it immediately. Note, it was A, not regifted, but B, it was returned before it was opened and yet still assessed as not what it was promised. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I, I don't know what to make of that. I just find it, the rest of the reviews are really, uh, are they serve the role of the review system. So, Well, the rest of them are, are almost all five stars. Well, jewelry. Four. There's yeah. jewelry. There's, uh, well, this is, we've gone way too far on this one now. Yeah, we really have. There's a great collection of the Clash music. Judith Perry, Oreo lover. Doc Martin boot review. They were, yeah. they were actually a Christmas gift for her son, but they did not fit, so she returned them. But she's a Doc, Mar- Doc Martin's fan. So and, she, and rates she rated them five, the five stars, stars. anyway. Because <laughs> they must be good. Right? They're docs. Oh, so funny. Amazon. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. 
For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. It's the way to go. Okay, we're going to do a little game. I'm going to name a series from season four, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. Didn't we just do this in season three? We're going to do this one as a speed round. Here we go. Terry Gilliam. The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Jason Reitman. Labor Day. Comedy by the Brothers Cohen. Oh, brother. Stephen King. Ah, uh, the Shining. Uh, Cujo. The Dead Zone. App Pupil. Misery. Stand by me. What else did we cover? Oh, you got one more on Audible. Carpenter. Ah, Christine. Christine. Hey, you got it. We've covered lots of great movies that started as books, and most of those are on Audible. Books like The Exorcist, Requiem for a Dream, The Bishop's Wife, The Poseidon Adventure. Syriana, Million Dollar Baby, L.A. Confidential, Double Indemnity, Detour, The Thin Man. So many great movies from so many great sources. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them. So now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out. And you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. Audible.